Listener Production. This is Global Truths with Dr. Keith Suda. Join us each week as we break down an issue in global politics so that you can understand what is happening in the world right now and also what's likely to happen in the future. Our host, Dr. Keith Suda, is one of Australia's leading commentators on global affairs and geopolitics. My name is Sasha Barbagat. I'm a journalist. On this week's episode, we are looking into the relationship between inequality and lower health outcomes in the United States, a country that, unlike Australia, does not have universal health care. Now, this discussion is based on an excerpt of an article titled Inequality Kills Us All, COVID-19's Health Lessons for the World. Keith, do you want to talk us through the main focus of this article and do you agree with its premise? Oh, absolutely. So the, the article is based really on the anniversary 30 years ago of an article by Richard Wilkinson, who's recently retired. So he's a, a British academic and he had a very simple graph of life expectancy. So he looked at nine developed countries and looking at the percentage of income received by the poorest 70% of families for each country it showed that there were unfortunate correlation between poverty and poor health. So he then helped trigger this debate that has gone on, in fact, produced a bestseller, which continues to be a bestseller, although the article doesn't deal with this. It's also worth acknowledging the work of Sir Michael Marmot at the University of London. Sir Michael talked about social indicators of health. In other words, that we tend to assume that if you're in a stressful job, mm-hmm. running a big corporation, you have poor health because of the stress that's wearing you down. But in fact, the people who have the most health issues are right at the bottom of the organisation. Yeah, You don't have control of their time and they're worried about their income. That's right. So that was Sir Michael Marmot's study. He did a study of, of primates. Oh. <laughs> so the primates are the gorillas, mm-hmm. where he noticed there was the same sort of status anxiety. Wow. You know, the, the powerful males get the females and the weak males don't. And then he linked it up with what was going on in the world of business, where you get the powerful males (laughs) who also do very well compared with the the weaker males. So that was Sir Michael Marmot. Taken together, these two British authors have really helped us to rethink through the complexity of the delivery of medical services. Because normally when we think about medical services, you have a medical incident, we just simply rush you off to hospital, we give you some treatment, and then providing it works you're sent home. Whereas what these two are saying is that there are actually deeper causes for ill health, which are not just due to the health of the person on the day of the incident, Mm. but in fact come out of the poorer background that people have. And that if you're a poorer person, generally speaking, you'll end up with poorer health and you won't live as long. So there's an interesting, another interesting study in the United Kingdom on death by postcode. So there are certain postcodes, sometimes quite close to each other, where you have people dying earlier than people in another part of that city, just simply based on wealth. I remember a similar study coming out during COVID in Melbourne, where I was at the time, and it was the same thing. It was very, barely kilometres separating these two places but they had different socioeconomic backgrounds. So you were seeing these different health outcomes. Yeah. And how big is the divide, just so that we can understand, between the rich and the poor in the United States? Is it a huge goal? It is a huge goal and it's getting bigger. And this is part of the Reagan revolution, or if you're in Great Britain, it's part of the Thatcher revolution. At the end of World War II, the Americans had come out of 
the Great Depression and World War II. And there was a very high rate of marginal taxation, even under the Republican president, uh, Dwight Eisenhower, in the 1950s, the highest rate of taxation was 87%, 87 cents in the dollar. Wow. Exactly. That's insane. And the same, of course, in the United Kingdom. Mm. And, And one saw in the United Kingdom the breakup of these big old historic estates with death duties. And the Americans also had death duties. Australia, by the way, is the only Western country to abolish death duties. Wow. We did that in the 1980s. So the general feeling at that time was that wealth is like muck. It's best when it's spread around. (laughs) (laughs) Yep. Amen. And so you have a high rate of taxation, which meant that if you're the boss of a company, you've got no financial incentive to lobby for a bigger income because you're going to be donating some of it to the government. Mm. And that followed all the way through until the big breakthrough came with Ronald Reagan. That high tax rate, marginal tax rate, was gradually being reduced, but the big breakthrough came under Reagan or Margaret Thatcher, depending on the country you're living in. So we begin then to see this growing gap between rich and poor, the gap that was manufactured by politicians. And so you end up then with people becoming much richer and people living more and more on welfare. Now, Margaret Thatcher, let me just say, said she was going to reduce the level of taxation. She never did. Mm. Her problem was what are called transfer payments. In other words, that one of the roles of the British government is to take money off the rich to give to the poor in forms of pensions, etc. And so Margaret Thatcher's reforms, yes, they lowered the amount of money being taken out of the pockets of rich people, but she had to continue charging tax, particularly to the middle class, because she had to give them to the poor mm-hmm. in these transfer payments. So the government's percentage of take of the gross domestic product remained about the same because of these transfer payments. So the Thatcher experiment didn't work all that well. But what it did do was to encourage people to become more and more ambitious, if you're a company CEO, to pay yourself more and more money. And then CEOs were then being rewarded for keeping average pay of their workers low. Mm. So you keep them low and you get a bonus. Good for them, not good for the rest of us. Exactly. I mentioned it briefly before. How much of a role does universal health care play in keeping the population of a country healthy? Very important indeed. And we see that most, of course, in the Scandinavian countries. Norway is considered to be the, the best country in which to live. I tell my American students that if you were to move to Scandinavia, you'd get your education for free. Mm. My students leave university with a huge debt problem hanging around their neck, and it stays with them until they die. So if you have a good universal health care system, as we see in Scandinavia, and also in Britain, one has to acknowledge the creation of the national health system after World War II, huge achievement by the Labor government, and many of the people who work in it take it as an issue of national pride. Mm. You know, you think back to the London Olympics, 2012, and the people who led the procession in with doctors and nurses. I remember during COVID as well, the NHS was just completely just clapping the tin pots yep. outside on the balcony. <laughs> um, and so obviously America doesn't have universal health care. No, it's seen as a German idea. Quite incredible. The first attempt to try to introduce it was Woodrow Wilson at the time of World War One, and it was opposed by people who said, no, this is a German idea, so we're not going to have it. Most health care reforms have failed. Obama was the most recent one. And that went through partially. You know, there are a lot of people who are saying, look, well, it's better than nothing, but only marginally. 
But that was his big achievement, eight years in office. He did that in his first two, first two years. So he really was unproductive for the following six. So it's very difficult then to get um, a national health system. Now, what has happened in the meantime is that at various times there have been labour shortages in the United States. Companies have come along and said, look, we will provide healthcare cover. So if you're employed in the United States, one of the things that you need to think about is what will be your healthcare cover as a worker. Remember, you don't have that problem in Australia. The hospitals are there for you or GPs, they're there automatically. Whereas in the United States, the healthcare administration itself is a huge industry in its own right. And we have people becoming bankrupt in the United States because of medical bills. To the best of my knowledge, no one becomes bankrupt in Australia because of medical bills. So the companies who thought they were going to do good by providing these company schemes, over the decades, these schemes have really become the fallback position, which is, I think, wrong. Senator Sanders campaigned on universal health care, but it was seen as too radical for Obama. It's, it's hard to imagine. It's, I mean, we live in Australia, obviously. I know you've lived lots of places all over the place, but I, it, it is just so bizarre to think that they think universal health care is radical. This is Global Truths with Dr. Keith Souter. Thanks for listening to this week's topic, the great health divide in America between the rich and the poor. Keith, the article we're discussing points out three main factors in what's fueling inequality, diminishing returns, psychosocial effects, and the fact that the rich control politics. Could you talk us through each of them a little bit? Yes, in regard to diminishing returns, basically richer people have better health as measured by mortality rates than poor people. The issue is that if you give $10,000 to a rich person to look after their health, that's no big deal because they're rich enough already. Mm. If you give it to a poor person, it would be transforming on their health. But the problem is we don't give it to poor people, which is why you have this problem. So that's one. The second one is the psychosocial effects, which is, again, produced by inequality. People may have enough resources to provide for basic needs, which typically include food, water, shelter, and security, but may not have enough to support the more lavish lifestyle that they see others enjoying. With a, a large income and wealth gap, they recognise that they don't have what they don't have and then compete for higher status. And so unequal society engenders stress and frustration. For example, when I was in Finland, I'd been with some company directors and we were going off to another meeting and they were travelling on the same public transport system that I was on. Wow. You know, they didn't have their own yeah. limousine to no. take them around. They just took it for granted. Yeah, we use public transport mm. in this country. So that is the mindset, whereas in the United States, you are reminded of your poverty every day because you see the rich go past in their big cars and you see the squalor in which you live. So there is this thing called status anxiety, which is the inevitable outcome of income inequality and it's found at all levels of income. The very rich often don't want to talk about their wealth and many of the rich don't admit to being more than middle class despite having several homes and other trappings of wealth. So they try to talk down the level of their wealth. But if you're a poor person, you know you're poor. Yeah. Despite right. the rich 
protesting that they are, oh, we're only middle class, mm. nothing special about us. I've got four homes, but nothing special about us. And also inequality leads to self-medicating with drugs. And the article has this incredible statistic. Three quarters of the world's opioid consumption takes place in the United States. Wow. And they've got such a crisis there with it. An immense crisis yeah. with opioid. Just frightening. And the opioid overdose death rates in the United States have risen since 1994, whereas in other countries like Australia, it's actually much more difficult to get access to opioids. Now, there have been all sorts of recent court cases because certain medical practitioners under the influence of the pharmacy industry have been over-prescribing the drugs, and so we've had court cases coming in. And I give credit to Donald Trump because he recognises a lot of his own supporters were those caught up in that opioid crisis in places like West Virginia, et cetera. Trump tried to make a difference on that. I don't think he did. Mm. The legal system has certainly been much more active on this matter, which is good, but the Americans have still got a long way to go. And then you've got the way in which the third area is the contextual effect of inequality, basically the rich control politics. And there is a lovely phrase in this article called the secession of the rich. In other words, to succeed means to break away. Mm. The article says, consider the lifestyles of those on top of the unequal wealth distribution. They live in gated communities, send their children to private schools and have staff to clean their homes, do the gardening and prepare meals. So they're actually separated yeah. away from the United States, which is one of the reasons why they didn't get COVID or had lower rates of COVID because they're just not being exposed to the general public. Meanwhile, the general public are travelling in overcrowded subway systems, etc., and running the risk to their health, whereas the rich have now broken away. It's kind of demoralising, I suppose, to think that the reason that there's such a huge health divide in the United States is because the rich just don't understand what it's like to have less. Is it that simple? Yeah, yeah. I think it is. Plus, they've got a financial incentive because... The only way you're going to help the poor is by taking some of your money to give to the poor. And they obviously are not very fond of that idea. So you end up with all these big IT business owners who are actually opposed to government intervention in the economy because they know full well that there'll be pressure on them to pay more taxes. The rich want to hold on to what they've got. And remember, this is a byproduct of new right economic rationalism. We go back to Ronald Reagan. So if you go back even further into World War II, there was a greater sense of commonality. So the Americans got through the Great Depression and then got through World War II by working together. And they're really fantastic stories. This was America at its finest. We talk about Britain's finest hour, but I think it's also America's finest hour. You know, the way in which factories were converted to um, civilian purposes is a great study by um, one management consultant about the recruitment of black prostitutes <laughs> into a factory in the South because the men had all been recruited for fighting. Mm. So they needed workers and so they recruited an entire brothel. Wow. And the madam who ran the brothel became the foreperson running the factory. And they did brilliantly. Of course they did. <laughs> Enterprising women. And so love uh, there was this feeling in the wartime and then immediately afterwards that, you know, there is this sense of common suffering. We've all had problems during the war. But then that began to change as America started its economic recovery. And as I say, you get the rise of, uh, of individualism, the economic philosophy that you need to look out for yourself, look out for number one, do unto others before they get a chance to do it unto you. The rich might inherit the earth. They're not going to get the mineral rights. So this sort of <laughs> mentality then has meant that nowadays 
People take it for granted that you just look out for number one. Mm. And Donald Trump is very good at exploiting that. But then most politicians are also playing to that same crowd. Can this gap be narrowed? I would never say never. It's very risky in politics because, as I say, America was transformed between 1930 and 1945 and could even be transformed again. Who knows whether this emerging climate crisis, will it force the Americans to to get together to work more or will they just perish separately in their graves? We just don't know. And that's why I don't do predictions. I do scenario thinking. With scenario thinking, you're always thinking of alternatives. Mm. One is that, in fact, the Americans don't change. They continue along very blindly and their society just continues to move towards the age of catastrophe, as -hmm. some of us are calling it. The alternative scenario is that the Americans can reinvent themselves. They did that brilliantly in January 1942. They were transformed during those years of the war. A fantastic story on the part of the American reinvention. And Kaiser Steel, biggest steel producer in America, became the largest provider of childcare Mm. in America. Wow. The men got off to war, the women were needed to work, they had to look after the children. So they said, right, we'll look after the children. Wow. It's a great story. Mm. So um, for me, you know, you, you should never write off America. It has this incredible capacity for reinvention. So yes, at the moment it's pretty gloomy, but who knows, the Americans can yet reinvent themselves. Reinvention is the heartbeat of American life. Hey, thanks for the chat today. Thank you. Global Truths is presented by Dr. Keith Suda and me, Sasha Barber-Gatt. Audio production by Niall Fernandez. Theme and original music by Matt Nikolic. Listener.